We have been in a, uh, a series of the Bible in 2020 that we've called the Storyline of the Bible series. So we started in January the 1st in, uh, of 2020, uh, thereabouts, um, in Genesis chapter 1 and in verse 1. And we've worked our way through. And this morning, we're going to be looking at an entire book of the Bible, the eighth book of the Bible. Um, and you, those of you that know what the, what the uh, number eight, what it represents in the Bible, um, it represents nothing. It doesn't mean anything. But we are in the eighth book of the Bible. It is the book of Ruth, and it is a fantastic book. And so if you've got your Bibles, open them up. I know it's just four short chapters, but man, we're going to have to rock and roll to get through it. I'm super excited to share this with you. It's a fantastic book, a rich book. I will say this as well. It was my grandmother's favorite book of the Bible. And she was such a godly influence and a godly woman. And so it's my joy to get to preach it today. Let's pray before we get started. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your redemption. As we see the book of Ruth, what we see is we see a kinsman redeemer. And may as we study this book, may it create a longing in us for a true and better kinsman redeemer, you, Jesus. You, Jesus, who sets your love and your affection and your protection and your provision upon us. You, Jesus, who take the bitter and turn them sweet again. Jesus, may this, the preaching of your word, may it, may it go forth unhindered for your glory, we pray that in your name, amen. If we were to take the, the book of Ruth and to place it um, within the Bible in kind of chronological order, then the book of Ruth would actually fit in the middle of the book of Judges. It would actually even come at the latter part of Judges after Samson, somewhere around maybe chapter 16 through the end to the 20th, um, 20th chapter in, in Judges. And if you remember last week, as we talked about Judges, one of the things that we said was the book of Judges is one of the darkest books of the Bible, especially when we get those latter chapters. I mean, those last two chapters of the book of Judges, they are super tough. They're super dark times. And so as we work our way through Ruth this morning, I'm going to just line out just three points that will be kind of like anchor points as we, as we traverse through the story. I'm going to read most of the first two chapters of Ruth and then summarize the last two chapters and then make some concluding uh, statements at the end. But here's what the book of Ruth teaches us. So there'll be three of these. They're a little lengthy, but like I said, they'll be like anchor points for us. And so the big idea is the big idea of the work of God. That what we see throughout the book of Ruth is we see the invisible hand of God God who, a God who is moving, a God who is working, a God who is shifting all things for his glory and for his people's good. That although, as you'll hear, as I read the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth um, will only mention God by name just a handful of times, but the entire time we see God as the central figure, God in his invisible work. It's the providential hand of God. And so number one anchor point, in light of that is this, that in the midst of tragedy, sadness, loss, suffering, bitterness, even under God's judgment, that you and I as the people of God, we can have hope because God is at work. In fact, the first time in the entire Bible that the word hope is mentioned is mentioned in the book of Ruth. We're eight books of the Bible in, and the first time the word hope comes up 
It'll be in today's text. It is in the book of Ruth. And so let me just say this about hope before we move any further. In our context and under, and under our understanding of hope, hope is something that may or may not happen. If we say something, we hope that something would happen. That means it, we, it may happen and then again, it may not happen. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it means of something of certainty, something that you can bank upon. That the Bible doesn't use hope whether it may happen or it may not happen, but it's a matter of assurance. That what hope in the Bible means, it means to look forward to something with an expectation that shapes the very, the very essence and the core of your life. That very shapes your whole entire outlook on life about a future event that you hope, that you have a surety, that you have certainty that will happen. So number one, we can have hope. No matter what your circumstances may be, we have hope because God is at work. Providentially, invisibly, God is at work leveraging things. Number two, here's how does, then, how does God work? Well, number two, God works in ordinary ways through ordinary people to accomplish his will and his work. That what we'll see throughout the story is we're gonna see that people that are just living life, suffering loss, gathering barley. We're gonna see emotions like human suffering and human love and hope and joy and even the idea of redemption throughout this, but it's all gonna come in very ordinary ways through ordinary people. And ultimately what we'll see in the end is God is accomplishing his will and his work through those means. And number three, Ruth points forward to God's greatest work, the redemption of God's people through a new and better kinsman redeemer. That the book of Ruth is almost allegorical as it unfolds. It's allegorical in telling the story of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as if Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and the characters through in the story, that they're, they're illustrating the very gospel that will come a few centuries later in the person of Jesus Christ. And even as we understand it today. All right, we need to get into the text. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. And we'll start in verse one. In the days of the judges, in, in the, in, I'm sorry, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now we'll pause there. Remember in the book of Judges, last week we talked about there were six, there were six phases that make up kind of the cycle of sin. So which phase do you believe that Israel, Bethlehem is a city, a region, a town inside of, of Israel. So in what phase do you think that they're in? Remember the phases, the phases were rebellion and then retribution and then repentance and then rescue and then rest. And then we said it, the last six was repeat. They went back around again. So where do you think the people are? They're in the place of retribution. Notice there's a famine in the land. Again, this is the promised land, the land that God said would be flowing with milk and honey as you obey, as you worship me. And what's happened is they've turned and worshiped false gods. And so God has judged the people, the people living in rebellion. So there's judgment has come and the judgment has come in the form of a, of a severe famine. And so there's a famine in the land in Bethlehem, so severe 
that the Israelites, the children of God, have been forced to go into other countries to find provision. And so this man, this Israelite, is left, and he's now outside of the land of flowing with milk and honey, and he's in the land of Moab. In fact, we see Bethlehem coming here. Bethlehem in the Hebrew, it does mean something. It means house of meat or house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread is the declaration that's being made here. Verse number two, the, man, uh, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Melon and Chilion. In Hebrew, the names of his son would be this, sickly and spent. So most likely these are nicknames or descriptors in order to clue us in to the state of their health. They were Ephetherites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was, and she was left with her two sons, remember, sickly and spent. These sons took Moabite wives. The name of one of the wives was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So they've entered into another phase. They're now in the phase of, of rescue and rest has taken place. God's hand of judgment has been removed from them. And now there's, there's food back in the house of bread. The land is flowing with milk and honey. Verse number seven. So she, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you, grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of, your, of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, there it is. Even if I should have a husband this very night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and they wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me 
and, and more also if anything but death parts from you. And so we see that Ruth has become a believer. She believes in the God of the Bible. She believes in Yahweh. This is a confession of faith. Verse number 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And and she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So chapter two opens up with these two women returning back into the promised land, returning back into uh, Elimelech's hometown, into the very place where, where, where they had left from. As they return, they're both widows. They have no children. They have no servants. They have nothing. They have no food. They have no jobs. Their pets' heads are falling off. No, wait, that's dumb and dumber. That's not in the story. So what does Ruth do in that moment? She does what they would do early in those days as she turns to, to gleaning and to begging. And so in chapter two, verse one, it says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and let me glean among the ears of grain. In in the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field under the reapers. Now, this is following um, after the command and the law of God that the children of Israel were instructed to, to do their harvest in such a way that they would accidentally, yet on purpose, that they would leave some grain, some barley, some wheat, some whatever they're, they're gathering, harvesting from the fields, they would leave it behind for the poor. So for example, they could only glean or go through and harvest a field one time. And then after that, the poor could go in, leave them alone, let them glean. If you pick up your sheaves, if anything falls out of the sheaves, it's, it's for the poor. And so that's what we see. What we see happening here, it says, and and she happened, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. It just so happened. That's a feature in the story. There's no miracles as we think about miracles in the book of Ruth. Like there's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no staff turning into a serpent. There's no water coming from a rock. There's no military leaders that are defeating huge armies of people. And yet we see the hand of God at work. What we see is God at work providentially. God's sovereignty as he sovereignly controls circumstances in seeming, seemingly ordinary ways, day-to-day events happen. And through those events, we're introduced into a new character. The character is Boaz. Now here, let me just say this, especially for the men that are watching. Here's where the, here's where the story gets a little smolsy. Here's where it gets a little bit uh, Hallmark movie-esque in, in, in feature. 
that names matter and meanings of names matter throughout the book of Ruth. We've already seen that as, as uh, Naomi has taken on the name Mara, which means bitter. We saw that with the two sons, uh, Spent and Sickly. And we see that here with Boaz. Boaz's name means strength. That's right, it means strong. I mean, the man's name is strong. Boaz is a man's man. I mean, Boaz doesn't know a single song by any boy band. Boaz has never tasted quinoa. He's never sipped on a white claw. He doesn't own anything pastel. I mean, we're talking about a dude here, right? Not only is Boaz strong, but Boaz is rich. He owns all of these fields. He has employees. Not only is Boaz strong and rich, but Boaz is godly. I mean, in fact, look how he greets his employees, the reapers, in uh, chapter 2, verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. I mean, just picture that. Your boss walks into the office and says, uh, the Lord be with you. And you pop up from your cubicle and you say, and may the Lord bless you. I mean, you, you think, no, something else may. Anyway, we'll move on. Not only is he strong, not only is he rich, not only is he godly, but number four, Boaz's family, who was of the clan, the family of Elimelech. Now, usually you might think this is a bad thing, but for Ruth and Naomi, this is a great thing, and we'll unpack that in just a minute. But I think probably for most of, if not all of the single ladies who are members of the Point Community Church, you may think about this, and you may think about Boaz being strong and Boaz being rich and Boaz being godly. And like, if we could meme that, it would be the meme where uh, David Chappelle is standing there scratching his neck. There's something powdered on his lips. I think it's powdered sugar. He'd been eating powdered donuts, maybe. And he says in there, the, the meme says something like, hey, y'all got any? And so you're thinking, yeah, hey, God, you got any more of them Boazes laying around, right? And maybe for the ladies in the room who are married or, or the ladies who are watching who are married, maybe you're thinking, you know what? I think I married Boaz's younger brother, Bozo, right? Maybe that's what you're thinking. But remember what the story of Ruth is about. The whole story is about trust and hope and longing, and it's pointing you forward to a better future that Boaz ultimately points us to Jesus. And Jesus is better than Boaz, and Jesus is better than Bozo, and Jesus is better than it all. That's what the declaration of this book is all about. Let's get back into the story. We're now in chapter two, verse number five. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? That's such an important question. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Girl's a worker. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He's offering protection to her. And when you were thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. That's his provision for her. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, 
Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. He knows her story and how you left your father and mother and your native land and you've come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Gosh, this book is so rich. I'm looking forward, Lord willing, when we'll preach through the book of Ruth that we can just touch it right now and we're leaving tons of meat on the bone. But let me just say this, there's great tension in this text. I hope you felt the tension. The tension hangs on the words of Israelite and foreigner. That's where the tension happens. That what you have here being illustrated in the text is you have those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. Those who are on the inside of the kingdom of God, the family of God, experiencing the blessing of God, Boaz. And then you have those who are on the outside of the kingdom, outside of the family, the foreigners who Ruth represents. And so Ruth, as we'll see, there's kind of basically a couple of strikes already against her. First of all is, the reason why she's on the outside is, first of all is she is a Moabite. Now here's the deal. The Jews hated the Moabites. The Moabites were an offshoot. They were the product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. So again, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot in that story, then he's with one of his daughters and they produced the Moabites and the Jews hated the Moabites. And so she is a Moabite. Second, she is a widow. Now, widows would not have been very respected. Widows would have been thought less of. They wouldn't have thought of a, as a burden, someone we have to take care of. They're usually not on the most desirable list. They're usually regarded as used goods. That's how they would have been thought of in that day. And number three, she is poor. She doesn't have much to offer her husband. Plus, on top of that, she's got Naomi. You remember the bitter mother-in-law that's with her as well, that whoever takes her in has got to care for Mara as well. Men, leave it alone. Don't smirk. Don't say anything. Stay with me. Boaz, on the other hand, He's on the inside. He has it all. He's a Hebrew. He's, Isra he's an Israelite. He's strong. He's wealthy. He's definitely on the inside. Now, let me just fast forward a little bit in the story that what we see in the story is that Boaz will set Naomi up. I mean, she'll gather more barley than she can possibly carry. She'll bring it back into Naomi. And when Naomi sees, I mean, yeah, sets Ruth up. And when Naomi sees everything that Ruth is carrying and everything that Ruth has, Naomi is shocked, pun intended. And then Ruth tells Naomi about Boaz. In chapter two, verse 20, Naomi says this. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now I'm gonna get back to the idea of redeemer, but before I do, I just wanna mention this, that if you have your Bibles in front of you or if you're looking on some kind of device and you can do this, I want you to look back at chapter one, verse 20, 
in contrast to chapter 2, verse 20. Now, I fully understand that the chapters and verses and the numbers aren't in the original text. I understand that, that they come later. I understand that they're not inspired. They're just there for our benefit. But I think as God sovereignly controls and superintends over those things, I think this is important to note that chapter 1, verse 20 says this, speaking of Naomi, that she said to me, do not call me Naomi any longer, but now call me Mara. For God, the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly with me. And one chapter later, she's giving worship and praise to God. She's recognizing the blessing of God. I think this illustrates a truth in our lives. That as the singer-songwriter Rich Mullins said in the 90s, he sang a song and he said, these are hells and our heavens are so few inches apart. And that is the truth of life. That life is filled with sorrow and filled with joy. And the truth that Ruth is declaring, even here, that God is sovereign over both. He is sovereign over the times that make us joyous and the times that bring us sorrow, that God has set his love upon us in both. But the bitter times doesn't mean that God is any less in control, nor do they mean that God loves you any less. And in the same way, neither do the joy times mean that God is more in control or mean that God loves you anymore, that God is working all, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. He's leveraging it all for his glory and for your good. Believe that for both your salvation and for your sanctification. This has in it the story of Joseph. It echoes the story of Joseph. Now, let me talk for just a minute about the word redeemer. That's important. Naomi has declared to Ruth that Boaz is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. That in those days, if you were in debt and your land had to be sold or deeded out or given away in order for you to pay off those debts, that there was like a form of bankruptcy that would happen and where assets would be sold. So all of that stuff would be sold. But here's the difference. The difference for the, under Jewish law, under the Mosaic law, that is that a family member could return at any time and purchase that land back. And we go into all the reasons, but we'll just leave it there for now. All they had to have was the money. Again, a family member could do it. If you couldn't do it, then a family member could do it for you. That's kind of the way it works. It was like a first rights of refusal that went to the family that was always there. All you had to do was have a family member to front the money and to pay it. That family member would be called a kinsman redeemer. And in order for a kinsman redeemer to do this, they had to meet three criteria. The first one is they had to have the right. They had to be a closest living relative who was willing to do it. Second, they had to have the resources. They had to have money. They had to have an ability to pay off the debt, to purchase the land, to do whatever they needed to do. And lastly, they had to have a desire. They had to want to do it. And that's where they are in the middle of the story. The middle of the story is the question, is Boaz the redeemer? Well, he has the right. Well, he has the resources. He's rich. And then the last question comes in, is does he have the desire? In fact, there's a moment where they even question, does he have the right? In fact, they find out there's another kinsman redeemer that's closer to Elimelech, that really the land should belong to him. And then there's the question of, oh no. And then he says, wait a minute. You mean I get Naomi and Ruth? Well, forget it. I'm out. No desire there to take them in. And Boaz shows up 
And Boaz saves the day and Boaz says yes. He says yes to the land. He says yes to Naomi. He says yes, most of all, to Ruth. He is a suitor. He's bona fide. He gets it. And as you guessed it, Hallmark movie-esque, but beautifully written, Boaz marries Ruth and they live happily ever after. But let me just tell you that, that isn't where the story ends. And that isn't even the climax of the story. The most important part of the book happens in the last few verses of the fourth chapter, the last chapter. Let's begin in chapter number four, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Those last four verses end with a genealogy. This is the climax of the story. This is what strikes a chord in our hearts as we understand how this fits into the very story of God. Look at how the last four verses end. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered uh, Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And if we press pause there and fast forwarded 25 pregnancy, 25 begats, 25 fatherings, we would have Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the son of Jesse. Jesus, the son of Boaz and the son of Ruth, who was born in Bethlehem the city of Elimelech and Naomi and the house of bread was born the bread of life. And in Ruth, we see the whole gospel that's illustrated before our eyes. In the same way that we said that the, the role of the judges, they prefigured Jesus. We see the same thing happening here with Boaz. That the judges prefigured a Christ who would come with might and power, who would kick tails and take names, who would destroy the enemies of God, who would rescue the people of God. But here we see a different side of Jesus. We could even ask ourselves, what would be the disposition of this judge towards his people? And here we have it in this kinsman redeemer. Judges come with might, but a kinsman redeemer comes with love. His story and his disposition would be the love of God. It points us forward to a kinsman redeemer who would come to love his people, who would come to provide and to protect and to lavish blessings upon his people. 
that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is about the business of redemption. In fact, as we see in the book of Ruth, that the word redemption will be used some 23 times in Ruth's four chapters because the gospel of Christ, when I say gospel, what I mean is the, the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, that the work that Christ has come in living the life that we could not live, dying the death that we deserved on a cross, being placed in a tomb, rising victoriously. That's the gospel, ascending on high, sending his spirit. That's the gospel to, to save the foreigners and to save on those on the outside. But the gospel is about redemption. That in the gospel, God is about the business of redemption. That in the gospel, the unloved are loved, the spiritually poor and bankrupt. Well, we receive an inheritance. We were provided for richly. We received the treasures of heaven. In fact, that inheritance is lost and sin is reclaimed through the generosity of another, that other being Jesus Christ. Remember when Naomi's changed is, remember when Naomi's name is changed from Naomi to bitter to Mara? But the story ends with her being called Naomi again. This illustrates the bitterness of sin. But through the blessing of Jesus, the sweetness of life is restored. The book of Ruth starts with death, Naomi losing her husband and losing her sons, and it ends with a genealogy recounting a list of birth. Ruth ends in a genealogy. It ends with life because the Bible, the gospel, Jesus, all of this ends in new life with Christ. This is the theme of Ruth the theme of the Bible. It is the very heart of gospel that ju just like Boaz, who cared for and loved and protected and provided for those on the outside, those with three strikes or maybe even more against them, Christ has come for those on the outside, for those who have no rights, those who have been seemingly forgotten. As Peter will even write in his short epistle, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That the gospel of Christ is not that God rewards the successful. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not God grants heaven to the righteous and to the victorious. The gospel is this, as it's summarized in Isaiah chapter 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He and he who has no money, come buy, eat, come buy wine and milk without price, without money. Why? Because someone has already paid it for us. That person is Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. The gospel is a declaration of a kinsman redeemer that had, a, had the rights. He was the creator of the world. He was the very son of God. He had the resources. He owned it all and he had it all and he laid it down. And why? Because of his desire, his desire to take widows and orphans and foreigners, the broken and the bankrupt and the sinful, and to bring them into his family and to call them his own. He invites them to himself and he marries himself to them and he loves them with an unending, never failing love. This is the gospel of Christ and it's beautiful and it makes us come alive when we hear it and when we believe it. It's the story of redemption, how Christ redeems those that he loves. Let me ask you in closing, is it your story? not asking you how religious are you, how moral are you, how righteous are you. I'm just asking you this question. 
Do you believe that and is it life-giving to you? Has it transformed you and has it changed you? As you thought about Christ lavishing his love upon you, is this story. And those who, it is their story, it becomes our story. We live as a part of that story. We live as we're married to Christ, carrying out his will and carrying out his wishes, living in submission to him. That's how we live our lives. And it also, it shapes us so that the very shape of our life is to care about those who are on the outside, the lost, the spiritually bankrupt, the poor. We care about them and we carry that story of those on the inside to those who are on the outside. We care about the foreigners, the Moabites, the people that we may not associate with, the the people we may not even think much about. Is this your story? Is your story the story of redemption? And are you living to make that story known? Let's pray. Christ in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you've loved us with a never-ending, unfailing kind of love. Thank you, Lord, for your great kindness to us. You've taken us in by your blood, by our faith in your blood. You've taken us in, you've invited us in, you've given us your name, Jesus, that we would be called Christians, little Christ, that we'd be placed in you. Praise your name. Lord, I pray for those that may be listening to me today, Lord, that may be in a time of bitterness. They may understand Naomi changing her name to bitter and they may be in a time of sorrow. Lord, may they have hope. May they have hope. May their sorrow point them forward, not just to better days, but to the end of days and to the ancient of days, you, Jesus. May they have hope. And Lord, for those that may be in a time of joy, may we, may we just realize, sometimes it's harder to praise you, it's harder to trust you in the times of joy, but may we, may we just remind ourselves of that beautiful truth that you are sovereign over it all, Lord. And Lord, we worship you. It's in your mighty name we pray, amen.